listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. You might have seen the photo. It was at once troubling and touching, and it was going viral over the last weekend. A doctor was dressed in full protective gear, blue scrubs, face mask, face shield, a double layer of gloves, his eyes staring off, it seemed, in sadness, in sheer exhaustion. And there was a patient who buried his face in the doctor's chest, his grief or perhaps fear etched on his crumpled shoulders, his white two-soled hair signaling his years. The doctor's two arms were draped gently over the elderly man as the two shared a moment in the COVID-19 intensive care unit at United Memorial Medical Center in Houston, Texas. It was, of course, poignantly Thanksgiving Day. This here is the image that I'm talking about. You may or may not have seen it. There were, of course, a range of themes and emotions captured in this photo, the relentlessness of the still-raging pandemic, the desperation of its victims, the heroism of healthcare workers all across the nation. But what seemed to capture people's attention most of all was the photo's powerful display of comfort, the compassionate offer of urgently needed humanizing comfort in a time of helplessness. You yourself may not be an ICU patient, and you may not yourself be seeking a a physician's consolation, but who among us wouldn't say that we long, sometimes even ache, for comfort? The good news is that Advent promises us just that. Advent, which means coming, is a season of hopeful waiting, waiting for the coming of God in Christ. And over the generations, one of the things that God's people have waited for most is comfort. Comfort in the face of the afflictions of disease and depression and depravity, division, and even death. And that's what the people of God desperately needed in today's passage, Isaiah 40. The first 39 chapters of this prophet were bringing warning after warning to Israel, who for generations had been steeped in idolatry, religious hypocrisy, the oppression of the poor. And after refusing again and again to repent of their sins, finally, God's people, the prophet announced, would bear punishment for their sins in the form of devastating exile. They were assaulted by brutal military violence at the hand of Assyrians and Babylonians, ripped from their homes and their livelihoods, deported to a faraway land, and held in captivity for 70 years. And it was in the midst of these afflictions, in the face of these afflictions, that God promises comfort. Isaiah 40 is where God commissions his messengers, voices, his prophets, to spread the word that his people will finally be restored. 
Her warfare, her hardship is ended. Her iniquity, her sins, pardoned. Her exile is over. Here is comfort for those struggling with confusion, economic devastation, homelessness, the loss of a sense of belonging and identity, estrangement from family, even bondage itself. God seems hidden to his people. Prayers seem to be going unheard. Maybe some of these things I just mentioned resonates a bit with you in your present experience of things. Maybe it's why you personally feel desperate for God's comfort. What is this comfort that Advent offers, this comfort that God promises to his people. Let's look at this together. We're going to find in this passage briefly the who of Advent comfort, the what of Advent comfort, and the when of Advent comfort. Who, what, when. Let's take a look. First, the who of Advent comfort. Now, this may seem obvious, but it's a point that's really important to underscore again. Advent comfort comes from God. And so it is to God that we must go for comfort. See, in this passage, God is the one who commissions the comfort of his people. He takes the initiative. Twice in verse 1, he repeats the call to comfort his broken-hearted people. Comfort, comfort my people. God is eager to comfort you. It's a theme found all throughout the book of Isaiah. In chapter 49, verse 13, the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. In chapter 51, verse 12, I, I am he, God announces, he who comforts you. In chapter 66, verse 13, as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you, says the Lord. Friends, comfort isn't just what God does. Comfort is who God is. It arises from his character, from his very nature. And so it's no surprise that even in the New Testament, we hear such things as 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3, speaking of the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. And as we've seen in our study, the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' ministry is marked again and again by compassion and comfort. He touches the unclean. He befriends the abandoned. He embraces the afflicted. He weeps with the weeping. And in John 14, Jesus himself refers to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, as the Comforter. That's his nickname. Father, Son, and Spirit, the whole of the Godhead, the Trinity, is inclined towards those who are downtrodden. God is not repulsed. He's attracted to your tears. So, brothers and sisters, a simple invitation to start with. Go to God with your pain, with your struggles. He waits for you. Psalm 55, 22 says this, cast your cares on the Lord, throw them, cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. As the author Fleming Rutledge has put it helpfully in her reflections on Advent, the Advent season encourages us to resist denial in the face of our pain, to face our situation as it really is, and to grasp the depth of the human 
predicament in such a way where we can enter into the very worst and give consideration to the help that we most need, even as we wait expectantly for the coming of the Lord. So bring God your sorrows and your sadness. Beloved, run to the God of comfort today because comfort is not just what God does, it's who he is. That's the who of Advent comfort. Secondly, the what of Advent comfort. What is it that God offers by way of comfort to comfort us? First, we see his tenderness. Tenderness. See in verse 2, the prophets, the voices are instructed to speak tenderly to Jerusalem, to speak tenderly on God's behalf. Tenderly means to the heart. It's actually a word that's used in the Old Testament for the way that a young man woos a girl or the way a deserted husband seeks to win back his wife. See, God doesn't just lay down cold facts. He seeks to capture our imaginations. He seeks to persuade our hearts with his love. In verse 11, we're told this, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. Now picture this image. He will gather the lambs in his arms. And of course, his people, you and me, we're the lambs. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Behold, the tenderness of your God, the gentleness of your God. And please notice how here in this passage, he's providing comfort even when the suffering of his people was of their own making. He's comforting them after their exile, their self-inflicted wounds and pains. You might have noticed in verse 2, the references to Israel's iniquity, and sins. But guess what? God never shrugs and says, well, sorry, you dug your own grave. No, no, no. God's comfort is rich in grace. It's a free gift and it's freely given even when it's undeserved. So often we resist going to God or expecting or banking on his comfort because we feel like we've forfeited our rights to be comforted. Do you know the grace of God? He comforts even those that don't deserve his comfort. He comforts every one of us, even in our sin and brokenness. As Hebrews 5.2 tells us of our great high priest, Jesus, he deals gently with his people. Behold, his tenderness. Second, God comforts us with his might, his strength. Look at verse 10. It describes God as a strong and mighty king. Behold, the Lord God, the sovereign Lord, comes with might, and his arm rules for him. You see, you you can be tender and full of good intentions to care for someone who's suffering, but be totally devoid of all resources to do anything about it. If that describes our God, then he would be of no use to us, no comfort to us, a sympathizing soul that had no ability actually to heal our wounds. 
But that's not the God of the Bible, the God of Isaiah 40. He's a God who comes with might. His arm rules for him. And this stands in contrast. It's placed in contrast to the vulnerability and the unreliability of humankind, which is depicted colorfully in verse 6 and 7. All flesh, all human beings, all humankind is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. God is not like us, frail and unreliable. He's strong. The grass withers, the flower fades. Verse 8, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. God is mighty, never breaks his promises, never fails at the purposes for which he sets out to accomplish his redemption. There's nothing my God cannot do. Right, kids? You know the song, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. There's nothing my God cannot do. Oh, the God of comfort who can heal even the deepest of our wounds, who can give us relief even in the most chaotic times, who can steady the ship of our souls that seems tossed by the winds and the waves. There's nothing my God cannot do. We're comforted not only by his tenderness, we're comforted by his might. Thirdly, we're comforted by his personal presence. You see, in verses 3 to 5, we're told this, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight a des- in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Now see, without question, Isaiah here is painting a picture of God's people finally returning home from exile in Babylon. Remember, that's the great promise that's being offered to his people. The highway here, that word in that verse I just read, in the ancient world refers to these large public roads that were sometimes built by kings, often with raised embankments. Sometimes it was used by large armies. Sometimes large caravans of merchants would travel over these well-constructed roads. Now, surely Isaiah's audience, when hearing about this highway through the wilderness, they're immediately imagining, yes, themselves on this long but joyous journey home on the highway from Babylon to Jerusalem. Surely this image of restoration would have been of great comfort to them. But you know what? That's not all that this passage tells us. It tells us what? Prepare the way for for whom? In fact, though the image surely intentionally draws in the Israelites to picture themselves coming home, who is it that's actually mentioned in these words as the traveler on the road? This is the way of the Lord. And it's a highway for who? For our God. It's God that is coming, even as his people return home. Do you see the prophet is telling his people that their greatest comfort not lies not in their own coming home, but that God will be coming home to them. 
Dear friends, what is the great promise of comfort? It's God, his personal presence. We touched on this in the very first point, but let me raise it again. Who or what are you really looking for as you seek comfort in the here and now? As you seek comfort in the present or in the future? Is it God that you are seeking or are you looking past him? Uh, do, you, do you have more of your sight set on the things he's bringing in his hands or is it how he holds you in his heart? Is it just the gifts that he brings or is it the face of God itself? The God of love, the God of forgiveness, the God of covenant, the God of promises, the God of advent. Who are you looking for, friends? We're given his personal presence. We're given his tenderness and his might. And finally, we're given his redemption. You see, because if we look closely again at this image that's given to us, this well-known image, we discover something even more rich than a promise of homecoming. Every valley, we're told, will be lifted up. Every mountain will be laid low and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh, the whole world, shall see it together. Now, the prophet didn't say just the valleys between Babylon and Jerusalem. He didn't say just these few mountains over here and there. He's saying the, the way is going to be made straight the, the pathway for this king who is coming to be with his people is going to be made right everywhere. Every valley, every mountain, and all flesh, the whole world shall see it together. Clearly, mysteriously, the prophet is pointing to something far bigger, something more cosmic, even more universal even beyond the people of Israel, indeed to the people of the new Israel. Every tribe, tongue, and nation who would come to their covenant God. In fact, a closer look at the language in verses 4 and 5 reveals that this bigger thing is exactly what God has in mind. He says in verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up. Valley is in the original language, the reference to this flat, low-lying region, it refers to a, a steep valley or gorge surrounded by high walls on, on either side. It's a, a figure, a symbol for the poor and downtrodden throughout the prophets. These are the ones that would be lifted up one day. And every mountain, we're told, every hill will be made low, and mountains and hills, high places, are throughout the prophets associated with the proud, those who lift themselves up, associated with prosperous cities, those to which others look up, with the powers that be, these, they will be made low. One day, they will be brought down, humbled, even humiliated in judgment, those who exploit God's people, who exploit the downtrodden and the poor. And we're told the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Uneven and level are words that are used by the prophets metaphorically. Uneven can mean crooked, deceitful, 
Lovell can mean morally upright, a reference to the righteousness and justice, the justice of God. Do you see, it shouldn't be surprising if you read through the prophets or even the prophet of Isaiah, whenever they talk about the return or restoration of God's people from exile, they just can't help but to let their imagination soar. That God is going to bring back not just exiles, in in fact, he's going to bring back Eden. He's not just going to bring back his people, he's going to bring back his glory to radiate throughout all of creation. You see, what God is promising here, that every valley would be lifted up and every mountain and hill would be laid low and the crooked things would be made straight, God is promising a new creation, a, a, a new social order. The day when justice will be established, when idolatry will be no more, when the blind will see and the lame will walk. You see, friends, God is going to re-landscape the world. Isn't this what Mary talked about when she was told that she carried within her womb the very Son of God, the Savior of the world? When she pondered the meaning of this revelation, she sang this song that we call the Magnificat, recorded in Luke 1, and she uses almost the same language that we find in this passage. She says this, God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. The lowly would be lifted up, the high would be brought down. And of course, this is exactly the insight that Dr. King brought with him as he famously quoted from this very passage, Isaiah 40, when he in various speeches, but most famously in his I Have a Dream speech, talked about the possibility of racial justice in America and the liberation of black Americans from structures of oppression. I have a dream, he declared, that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. Do you see how this is comfort, friends? Here, this is God saying, not simply that I will heal your wounds, but I will first and foremost heal that which wounded you in the first place. You see, when the setting of God's people is that of war and pestilence and death and murder and loss and exile, raw and real things like this, mere sentimentality and nostalgia will not do. God offers you more than a hug. He offers you cosmic renovation. He he offers you the healing of injustice. Indeed, he offers and promises you the conquer of death itself. Mountains will be cut down. Valleys will be filled up. See, he doesn't just say, I'm going to provide for your needs today, a paycheck, enough to make ends meet. He says, one day, someday, you're going to be eternally secure. He he, he doesn't just say, I'm going to carry you in your heartache today. He says, one day, someday, there's going to be no more goodbyes, no more isolation." He doesn't simply say, I'm going to protect your health today or help you overcome one more day through the fear of getting sick. He says, one day, disease itself will be no more. Injustice and abuse 
will be no more. Even evil itself will be put to death. In fact, I won't just give you strength to persevere through the fear of death. Death itself will die. Hallelujah. Dear friends, that day is coming. That Advent day of promise is coming because the promise of this passage is that God himself will once again come climatically and fully. He came once before bearing these gifts. He did it in the person of his son, right? When the New Testament writers looked at this passage and they said, the voice in the wilderness preparing the way. Well, that's John the Baptist. We saw that in the Gospel of Mark in the very first chapter. And the one that's coming down this highway, well, whose glory shall be revealed? Well, that's Jesus. But wait, hold on a second. It's not what the passage said. The passage says that the one traveling down the highway is God and the glory that shall be revealed is the Lord's. So which one is it? The God of the Old Testament that's going to show up? The creator of all things? Or is it this man, Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem and who grew up in Nazareth? Which one is it? And the Bible's resounding answer is both. Jesus, the God-man, the one who was and is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, the one who promises to show up, who did once before, he himself, the embodied low valley, showing up in obscurity, born in a manger, to a family of nobodies, living a life of poverty and obscurity, dying on a Roman cross for the salvation of humanity. Here is Jesus, the low valley, who then burst forth in exaltedness, lifted up in resurrection glory. And who promises that he's going to come back one day? Because as we look around today, every valley has not yet been lifted up. Not every mountain has been laid low. Crooked things persist in our world, in our hearts. We need the fullness of God's promised salvation. Advent has happened. Advent is yet to come. Oh Lord, come Lord Jesus. Isn't it the cry of our hearts. And until that day, we continue to ponder in our hearts these promises that he came. He's here indeed, and he's coming again. And so you can look to one another and encourage each other. Lift up your voices and become heralds of this God of comfort. Tell each other this week, tell each other, your God is a God of comfort. And you can use the words of the prophet right here and say, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, say to the city of Washington, D.C., say to your brothers and sisters and neighbors, behold your God. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.